All right, let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this time that we can come together in worship, in listening to your word, in fellowship. Lord, I thank you and pray that your blessing is upon our church family, our time together. But Lord, I pray that it's a blessing to you. Whether it's in our, in our worship and song, whether it's in our time in the word, whether it's in our conversations, Lord, I pray that it's pleasing to you, it's a blessing to you. Lord, I pray as we come and we open your word and as we hear from you, may you um, set, please help us to set aside any distractions, any burdens, Lord. May you open our ears and our hearts to your word. And we lift this up to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You know, I was thinking it's been about uh, a little over a year and a half or so since uh, we've known each other a bit. You know, I don't know if time is flying by or whether it's crawling. I'm not sure. I guess it depends on your perspective. But I think I've done a pretty decent job in helping you understand me, right? I'm not a real complex guy. I think you know what I love, right? You know I love God. That's good, right? Hopefully I do, right? Uh, I love my family. Hopefully I've shown that I love my family. Hopefully that's the impression I've given you. Um, you definitely know I love my sports. Rams is coming up, right? Been watching the preseason games. And uh, if you've had conversations with me enough, you know that I love food, right? We've all known that. And I know I'm not the only one who does this, because in the converse, some of the conversations I've had with people, I know I'm not alone in thinking that food is a necessity of life, right? But actually, it's not even just necessity of Good food is a necessity of life, right? How many of you can echo that, right? Yeah, I could tell. Some of the conversations I've had, right, I could tell, oh, there's some people who like food just as much as I do, you know? That's always a good thing. I, I, I kind of like, uh, I have a, a, a better, shall we say, uh, I'm, I'm more pickier about eating out than my family or some of my family, right? You know, we can get in the car and talk about where we're going to eat. And I know that I may have a certain standard than, let's say, my wife and uh, at least one of my kids. I won't say which one, Right? I have a little bit of a higher standard. I'm a little bit pickier about the foods we eat. I will go out of my way to find a place that is good, that's worth it. You know, if you, how many of you ever Yelp food places you eat? You Yelp, right? You know the categories of dollar signs? Hey, I, 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 I can't, I don't look into the $3 dollar signs, right? That's kind of outside my realm, right? But I will go out of my way to find the good $1 to $2 sign food places, right? I want to find those places that are good to eat, that's worth it, right, to spend that time. How many of you, like if, you know, your families go out to eat, how many have found that it is difficult to satisfy everybody? Is that true? Right? You, it, it's hard to find a place that, after the meal, that everyone is satisfied with the meal. Satisfied with it. It's hard for me to be satisfied with everything. But when you do find a satisfying meal, is there a better feeling than when you've had a fully satisfying meal? All right, I'm the only one. All right, so maybe it's not the greatest feeling, but it's such a good feeling when you've had such a satisfying 
meal. You can walk away and say, ah, that was perfect. I am full. I am stuffed. When I was younger, I defined a satisfying meal as when I'm so full I can't eat anymore. But the problem about satisfying meals in that way is that when I was younger, I had such a metabolism that like an hour later, I'm hungry again. That feeling of satisfying, being that fully satisfaction didn't last very long. It lasted like an hour for me. Or I always had room for dessert. Nowadays, I have to be careful. Now, my, my, not only my wife, but now some of my kids even so I say, Dad, Dad, don't eat that. <laughs> Last time we were out together, you know, we, we, had, we, had, we were going to have dessert afterwards. And so one of my kids, when he saw that I really want, he, they know me. I wanted to finish the fries, but knowing that we, had, we were going to have dessert, they said, don't eat that. <laughs> Don't eat. You can't eat like you used to, right? Satisfaction. Sometimes it's so hard to find fully satisfying meals or to be fully satisfied, right? We hunger and thirst immediately afterwards. And it's amazing how God made our bodies. God designed us in such a way that our bodies will let us know when we're in need, when we hunger when we thirst, our bodies let us know where we're in need. And there's other needs, right? We have different needs other than hunger and thirst. When we have needs of companionship or affection, we have needs of, of, of any other kind, emotional needs, a sense of belonging, fulfillment, purpose, laughter. We have our, God designed us in a way to have these indicators for us to let us know that we are in need. God is amazing how he designed us to be that way. We have all these different needs. And I can't emphasize it enough to say that Jesus is the only one that can truly fulfill all those needs we have. I'm going to take a look at that today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. As you're turning to it, again, I'll give you some context. Last week in Mark, we saw that Jesus sent the disciples out among the people to preach a message of repentance, to teach them of the kingdom of God. He gave them authority to, to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And so after that, and this, oh, this came on the heels of the people of Nazareth rejecting Jesus. So he sends them back out into the mission field. And then Mark tells us that the disciples returned and they reported what had happened. So they went out and ministered. They proclaimed the gospel. They proclaimed Jesus, the kingdom of God. And when they came back, they reported all that they experienced with Jesus. And then we saw last week sandwiched between Jesus sending them out and them returning, telling about what, what had taken place, we are given this graphic account of John the Baptist's death. We saw how Herod and Herodias, their marriage was sinful. And John the Baptist spoke out against their marriage. And instead of recognizing their sin, Herodias was so obsessed with anger The one thing that she wanted the most was John the Baptist's head. Now, there's some degree of kind of evil there. 
It wasn't just, I want to see him dead, but she's, I want to see his head on a platter. That's a different degree. That's a demented degree. So we saw that the, they were confronted with sin, and instead of realizing their sin and realizing how sinful their marriage was, Herodias said, I want John the Baptist's head. Herod eventually granted her wish. So we talked about being confront, confronting sin. And if we, cannot, if we cannot recognize sin or sin in our life, we will fail to understand the significance of the gospel of Jesus. If we can't understand and recognize the gravity of sin, the effects of sin, we will not appreciate the cross. For not humbled by our need for a Savior, our pride will harden our hearts and our minds will be darkened. Our thinking will be distorted. And even when we come to faith in Christ, we still need to be sensitive and be aware of sin in our life. Because that's what sin does. So it's important for us to confront sin. To not dismiss sin. We talked also about how sin affects us, but it also affects others. Right? It affects other people. If I talk a certain way, and people know that I'm a Christian... What does that tell other people about being a Christian? If we do certain things just like everybody else does, we we engage in the sinful behavior that everyone else does, and they know we're Christians, what influence or what impact does it have on those who don't know the Lord? What What does it say about being Christians? So we need to understand, not it's not just a message to the unbeliever, about being confronted with sin. But we as believers in Christ need to be aware that it's not just us individually, but it's how we witness to other people. Paul talks about us as being ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. Right? We all know what an ambassador is, right? An ambassador is a representative from one party to another party. So Paul's saying we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representing Christ to other people. So he says, make make sure to give no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, and distresses. So Paul reminds us, the message of sin isn't just for the unbeliever in the sense that, well, now that we're Christian, we don't have to worry about sin, right? Christ, take care of it, and we can do whatever we want. Paul's saying, no, remember, you are ambassadors. Think as if God is entreating, speaking to other people through you. You are a representative of Christ to those who need him. So remember that. So don't do anything that will discredit the ministry. So we saw last week how upon their return, Jesus and the disciples, after their return from ministry, Jesus said, let's go to a secluded place to rest. If you remember, right, the disciples were doing so much ministry, they didn't even get a chance to eat, right? They forgot to eat. So Jesus says, let's go to a a place and let's rest. Let's go to a desolate or a lonely place 
to rest. And I hope the disciples had a very restful trip along the sea. Because they're not going to get any rest once they arrive. Let's turn to verse 33. Verse 33 of Mark. It says, And the people saw them going, and many recognized them. And they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. So Mark describes Jesus. He goes to a secluded place, a lonely place. And that word for lonely or desolate place occurs six times in Mark's gospel. Mark uses this word to describe a desolate or lonely place. He used it in, in when Jesus was tempted in Mark 1, 12-13. He describes that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Right? He goes on to a secluded, Jesus goes on to a secluded place to be alone to pray in Mark 1.35. Mark talks about how Jesus went to unpopulated areas to minister, drawing the people out from the villages out to go see Jesus. And so Mark uses the same word here to describe how Jesus brought the disciples to a place of rest from their work. So we have this picture that Jesus is going to these unpopulated areas, the places of solitude, okay, to go. But this is also the last occurrence that Mark will use with this word. I thought that's kind of interesting. Because if you look at the journey that Jesus has, you look at his ministry as a whole, he started out going into the wilderness. He ministered out into these unpopulated areas. He's keeping the word of him down a bit. Right? Word is spreading. People are coming to see him. But it's not yet time for him to be revealed for who he is fully. His destination is Jerusalem. His destination is the cross. He will get to Jerusalem, the populated areas, when we see it later in Mark. But for now, he's ministering out to the villages. He's ministering these unpopulated areas. But here's a final point of when Mark uses this term. I think we're going to start seeing a shift in Jesus' journey and ministry. But here Jesus arrives, and the multitude recognize him and beat him to the point. They saw where he was traveling, and they met him. They were already there when Jesus was sailing across. Verse 34. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Here again, Mark uses this, uh, this term, Jesus being moved with compassion. This term for compassion three times in his gospel account. The first time Mark notes that Jesus had compassion was to a leper in chapter 1. If you remember, a leper approached Jesus and he said to Jesus, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was moved with compassion. This is the second occurrence when Jesus sees the multitude of people. Mark says he was moved with compassion for them. Literally, it's like the inwards, the bowels are stirring within them. Right? That's the literal translation. The third time, third occurrence we'll see later in chapter 8. So Mark, or Jesus comes, he's coming to shore, and he's looking out at all the people waiting for him. He didn't tell them where he was going. But they sought him out, and they were waiting for him. And he looks at the multitude, and his impression was he sees them. It's like sheep 
without a shepherd. That's his impression. And he was moved with compassion. There was something about this crowd. They made an effort to seek out Jesus. They were waiting for him. I think you could say they were hungry. How many people today are like sheep without a shepherd? You look out there and they're looking for something, but there's no one, they they don't know, they're not protected, they're not guided, they don't know where to go, they're lost. There's so many people out there, we look, they're like sheep without a shepherd, they're wandering from place to place, vulnerable, no one to guide them. They're searching for something to satisfy their needs. Verse 35. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came up to him and began saying, the place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. So again, it's worth noting, Jesus is not always teaching in a crowded area, but he's out in desolate areas. But people are coming in from beyond the desolate areas to go see Jesus that people are eager not only to see Jesus, not only to hear Jesus, but they're willing to stay a long time. They're willing to spend their whole day to hear Jesus. As a pastor, that sounds great. Last week, I, was a little pr- I felt pressed for time. I'm like, oh man, I'm running late. I know the attention span of people, right? They probably tuned out when I said, good morning, Generations Church. Right? We have, we have, you have you noticed in our entertainment now, shows used to have introduction songs, right? They had little jingles. We always watched the jingles. We watched the credits. Now movies today, shows today, they cut that out. No one has the time to hear the jingles, the introductions, right? We're spoiled. We press the button, skip the intro, right? We've lost that sense. How many of us would stay a whole day to hear Jesus. Someone was bold enough to raise her hand. <laughs> so these people, they were willing to stay the whole day to hear Jesus. So that it's getting late in the day and the disciples assume the people must be hungry. They didn't, they didn't provide meals like we do, right? People just came. So they're thinking, well, you know what? It's getting late. They need to eat. Now, we don't hear complaints about the people. The people, we don't see the people are complaining about being hungry. Part of me wonders if the disciples, now again, this is speculation, this is not gospel, right? But I'm imagining. I wonder if the disciples kind of were thinking to themselves, gosh, you know, Jesus, we're kind of hungry. <laughs> it's getting late. You know, we didn't have time to eat before. You know, we told you we're doing all that ministry, and you said we're going to go, go rest, and, and now we're, you know, there's a bunch of people, and we sat there, and my stomach's a little hungry, you know. And so what they do is like, oh, you know, Jesus is getting kind of late. 
Go send them somewhere to find food. Now, I've always said this, you know, in our study time. We need to be careful in our study to represent the text well, right? We don't want to read emotions and voice inflection and intent into a passage that's not given to us, right? We can easily read passages with our own modern thinking, right? So I always try to preface to say that if, you know, I'm imagining something or I can picture something. It's not necessarily that's the case, right? With that being said, I find it almost comical. Uh, here are the disciples telling Jesus what he needs to do about the people. It's getting late in the day and the disciples are like, ah, oh, you know, Jesus is getting kind of late. You know, this mess is going a little long, less is going a little long, getting kind of hungry. Go tell them to find something to eat. As if Jesus is not aware of the time of day. As as if Jesus is not aware of what their needs are. I find it kind of interesting. That's why I'm wondering if the disciples themselves were kind of hungry, you know? Right? You know, we kind of give these suggested things, but really it's our our own needs, you know? So they go tell Jesus what to do. But Jesus boldly says, you go. You go find them some food to eat. And the disciples are like, what are we supposed to do? Do we have 200 denarii? A denarius is like a, a, a day's wage. Do we have all this money to go buy food for these people? How are we going to do that, Jesus? So what does Jesus do? Well, they're, they're, they're complaining, right? They're like, there's a lot of people here. There are thousands of people here. There's more people here than a Chargers game. How are we going to feed this many people? Yeah, this, this, is, this is not a football crowd. You, you don't get that. You don't get that, right? All right. Chargers fans? That's my point. There's only one. Okay. Anyways, so Jesus says, look, Go see how much food we have. And so they go out and they find this boy and he has five loaves and two fish. And they say, come here, kid. Let me see your food. The teacher here needs it, right? This kid's like, uh, this is my dinner, you know? All right, I don't know if that really happened. But they find this basket, this kid, with the basket of five loaves and two fish. Verse 39, and he commanded them all to recline by groups on the green grass. And they reclined in companies of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up toward heaven. And he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. So Jesus commands the disciples, separate the people in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And so they spread out among a grassy area. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish and he looks up toward heaven And bless the food. It's interesting that all four Gospels have this miracle. It's the only miracle of Jesus that all four Gospels have. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention that Jesus looked up toward heaven and blessed 
the food and began distributing the food to the disciples. What's interesting, it says that all the people ate and were satisfied. Now, it's a miracle enough that Jesus gave thousands of people food, but I think the greater miracle is that all ate and were satisfied. Can you get your whole family of four or three or five after a meal fully satisfied? That is almost a miracle in itself, right? To be fully full, right? If you have some some hearty appetite guys, sons or whatever, or you husbands, or it could be the opposite too, right? To fully satisfy everybody. But these were thousands of people. They all ate and were satisfied, and there were left over. So Jesus told the disciples, gather all the leftovers. And he asked how many were left over. And they said, 12 baskets full of bread. Now at face value, this is a miracle, right? What a great miracle what Jesus can do. But just like many of the acts of God and miraculous things of God, and many of the different things how God intervenes in our life, there's a bigger picture going on than just the miracle itself. There's a beautiful portrait that's being displayed from all the people, and even the people there probably had no idea what's being said, what Jesus is declaring. So here's a bigger portrait, a bigger meaning of what's taken place. The first portrait that we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see Jesus being portrayed as the shepherd. Remember when Jesus was arriving to the shore and he saw the people and what was his impression? They were like sheep without a shepherd. This speaks to the heart of our Savior. People who are seeking help, they're seeking hope, they're seeking healing, they're seeking all these things in their life and Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. They see, he sees people who need protection. They need to be taken care of. They need deliverance. That's so encouraging to hear that that's God's perspective of those who are seeking him, who desire him. God desires to be your shepherd, to be your provider, to be your protection, to deliver you. And notice where Jesus takes them. He takes them in verse 39 to an area of green grass to eat. Visually, literally, just like a shepherd does with the sheep, bringing the people to a place of green pasture. No, he didn't give them the grass to eat, right? But he's going to eventually give provision to them. Again, this reminds us of the famous Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. For those of you who don't know what that means, have you ever been confused? Remember when as a kid you read that, you're like, what does that mean? Why should I say the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? What's it meaning? I mean, you will not be in need, right? There's no one else, there's no other needs you would, you would have as the Lord is your shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So what a beautiful picture of how God sees those who seek after him. I will be your shepherd. 
I will guide you. I will provide for you. Take you to a place of green pastures and calm waters. I will restore your soul. I will lead you through the paths of dangerous areas. He doesn't say you're going to avoid all danger. But no, he says, I will guide you. I will be with you through those points of danger. So we see this portrait of Jesus as the shepherd. The second thing we see, Jesus as the bread of life. John expands on this in his gospel account. In his gospel account, Jesus feeds the multitude. He travels across the sea again, and the people find him. And what they do is they ask for a sign. They demand a sign. Give me a miracle. If you are who you say you are, give us some kind of sign or miracle. Imagine that. Jesus had just fed the multitude of people. He has been giving them signs and miracles. And yet here are the people again demanding, give us some kind of sign. Give us more proof. And I've mentioned to us before, we need to be careful, right? If you're in a position where you're always demanding God for a sign, give me some sign, God. Give me some miracle. Intervene in some way for me to believe. You need to be careful. Because that miracle will not bring your faith. At least a lasting one. Because you're going to train yourself to always think that God needs to provide miracle after miracle after miracle to assure your faith. Your faith. But what does John say? Or Jesus say in that context? John 6, verse 31. He says, our, or the people say, Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, and it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So the people refer back to Moses. When Moses is leading the people in the wilderness, and God provided manna from heaven. Jesus responds in verse 32. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The people respond, give us the bread. Give us some kind of miracle like Moses did in the wilderness. They're thinking of the physical bread. Now, I'm a sucker for good bread, right? How many of us like good bread? Right? I could go to a restaurant with just bread. Or maybe not, but I I, I can fill myself with good bread, right? Lasting bread. And when Jesus talks about bread that will satisfy, they're like, give us this bread. We want this bread that's fully satisfying, that we're never going to hunger again. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger And he who believes in me shall never thirst. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. The manna from heaven was a miraculous provision from God, but it was a picture of who Christ would be. It was a picture of what God's provision will be. Jesus fulfills this foreshadowing foreshadowing, so that they could all understand and know. Just as God provided manna from heaven, Jesus evokes this image as he looks unto heaven and blesses the bread and passes it out to the people so that there was no one who was in need. This reminds us of what? communion right 
Before Jesus' sacrifice, he broke the bread and passed it out. And he said, take, eat, this is my body that was broken for you. So he's providing the miraculous bread from heaven. But he's not only, he's not only the provider, he is the one. He says, I am the bread of life. Seek after me. I am the one who can fully satisfy you. Those who believe in me will never hunger again. What a beautiful picture in that moment. The third picture we'll see. Jesus as the bridegroom. Now this one will be, is a little less obvious unless you understand a particular Greek words, right? We see in verse 39, and he commanded them all to recline by groups in the green grass, and they reclined in companies of hundreds and fifties. When we look at the English translation of groups and companies, we don't think much of it, right? Groups, companies, okay, whatever. But the words used in Greek, symposia for the groups, that refers to a drinking party, not, not, not like the sorority or fraternity kind of drinking parties, okay? We're talking about an entertainment party, a celebration party, right? A room full of guests, you're arranged in party section. You think about it, in a, how many of you have got, oh, you don't have to raise your hands. If you've gotten married, you organized a wedding, right? What comes after the ceremony? The reception. How many of you remember that time of having to coordinate the reception? Was that stressful? How to arrange people by tables and rows? So at the reception, there's tables arranged, right? Who gets arranged in those tables? So this picture, arrange them in groups, but in the Greek words, actually referring to as if a celebration is taking place. And that Greek word that we, we see for companies, do it in rows, So arrange the people in 150s, do it in rows and groups of people as if this is a celebration. That's the scene that Jesus is portraying here. He's not saying, okay, here's a group of people, just pass it out. He's saying this is like a celebration. Group them in rows. Now, a wedding feast, why do I say a wedding feast? Well, a wedding feast was a picture of the redeeming celebration of the Lord's return. It is a familiar picture we see in Scripture, right? Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom in Matthew 9, 15. Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God through parables of a wedding celebration, To understand the kingdom of God, he paints this picture in the frame of a wedding celebration that is going to take place. John speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19.7. Paul likens our relationship with Jesus as a marriage relationship in Ephesians chapter 5. And this imagery of a marriage or wedding celebration isn't just a New Testament concept. God speaks of his people as his bride in Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, and Hosea chapter 2. So this portrayal, right, this, this portrayal of where to understand our relationship with God and how he portrays it as this wedding celebration, I find it interesting that Jesus, as he's grouping the people out, is saying, this is a festive celebration Separate in groups of people, rows of people. 
afterwards, 12 baskets, right? 12 baskets of bread is collected. And I think this is a significance. Personally, I think this is kind of like Jesus' message to Israel. You know, 12 tribes of Israel, right? 12 baskets are filled. He is the one, I think, is saying a message to Israel. He is the one who gives life. He is the one they are waiting for. He is their shepherd that David sang about in the Psalms. He is the fulfillment of these miracles. If you're a Jew in that time, this picture, if you're able to even see, if you kind of look back and take a step back, this picture, Jesus is making a great declaration of who he is and what is taking place. So this message should, should really spark alarms for those Jewish people there at the time saying, wait, something's going on. What a beautiful portrait. Jesus the shepherd. Jesus the bread of life. Certainly Jesus the bridegroom. So we look at this study. We looked at the last week and this week. Last week we looked at confronting sin, right? This week we see liberating celebration. This picture of celebration. Last week, you looked at the uncomfortable message of being confronted with sin. But here we see Jesus' compassion, particularly for those in need. And I think we need to understand this. I think it's appropriate when we hear a message of sin to understand how Jesus sees the sinner. He wants you to know that though you may have had sin or you may still struggle with sin, God, you can experience God's compassion. You can experience his compassion. He doesn't want you to feel like a wandering sheep that's lost, that's being misguided, but he wants to be your good shepherd and bring you back into the fold. He desires for us to enjoy great celebration. I was thinking about that in in preparing the message When we're with the Lord, it's going to be a celebration. I don't know what your experience is in some weddings. Some weddings is not great celebration. Have you ever been to some weddings? Right? I've been to some weddings. You wonder, is the bride and groom kind of happy about this or not? Not a lot of smiling going on. You can see parents kind of weeping, and they're kind of like mourning of what's happening, right? And even the reception, everyone's just kind of like, you know, all formal, not a lot of great celebration. Jesus, when he separated the multitude, said, relax, recline, right? In that custom of the time, they would sit on the floor and they would just lean on each other. They would be reclined back, not sitting properly in our chairs, no hands on the tables. Relax, this is a celebration. I don't think we get it. When we're with the Lord, it's going to be a great celebration. That's great to know. A great celebration. We want to be like those people who are seeking Jesus. We want to be like those who are seeking Jesus. We recognize our need and we're seeking the one who saves. And I want to end with this point. In our time of need, do we show humility or entitlement? Brokenness needing Jesus or broken resentfulness?
I'll say that again. In our time of need, do we show humility before God or do we feel entitlements as if God is supposed to just make things all better for us the way we want it to? In our time of need, are we seeking Jesus in brokenness or are we broken and resentful? We're in need, God, how can you do this to me? Because the people with Jesus saw, I truly believe they represented people who went out of their way. They sought Jesus and they were willing. It could have been the whole day. And they just wanted to hear Jesus. I think we need to resemble that. If we can have that heart. What a great picture. And I think God will honor those who will seek him. If you have the desire for the Lord, God, I need you. And I am going to seek after you. And if I didn't hear the answers now, I'm going to keep seeking to hear from you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful portrait we have of you, Lord. You as our shepherd, you are the bread of life, and you are our bridegroom, Lord. You desire to lead us, to protect us, to lead us in our life, Lord, through both the good and the bad. In our times of need, in our times of want, you are our good shepherd. But Lord, you are also the bread of life, that he who believes in you will never hunger and thirst. What more could we ever want or need than you, Lord? And that, Lord, you are our hopeful, eternal bridegroom, Lord. That we, have, we can look forward to one day we'll be in great celebration in your presence, Lord. When you come for your church, when we are reunited with, reunited with you or united with you, Lord God, what a great celebration that is. Lord, if there's anyone in need here today, that they need you, Lord Jesus, may you speak truth into their hearts, Lord God, and may they recognize their need for you, Lord, to help them with the sin in their life, help them with the hurts and pain in their life, help them, Lord, with the sense of loss or rejection. May they find truth in you, Lord God, and come to faith in you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.